attention sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If we actually managed the resources that we had, we could probably do a better job than what we do today where we just simply don't even include it in our regular budget that we vote on on a year-to-year basis. But I just think it was an enormously poor judgment on the part of the leadership of the FBI. And it's really a kind of, who do you think you are? Why not say to the American people, global climate change is not only real, but the urgency of this moment requires a, a call to action to all of America's engineers, all of our entrepreneurs, all of our innovators to say, let's solve the problem together. Today, 94% of Senate Democrats could not even vote to protect babies after they're born. And the only explanations they could offer were bizarre euphemisms and vague references to issues that have no bearing once a child has already been born alive. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome back. Thanks for being here today. Uh, we are going to be chatting about quite a few different things. Uh, starting off with this statement by Ken Starr. He is talking about, he's being interviewed about everything that's going on with this 25th Amendment discussion that apparently Andrew McCabe and Rod Rosenstein had about uh, President Trump. And I... I can't stress enough how if it was appropriate, this wouldn't be an issue. But this was simply a group of people taking the matters into their own hands and um, just just basically saying, we don't like this guy. So we're going to get rid of him. We don't like the way he talks. We're going to get rid of him. We don't like his attitude. We're going to get rid of him. And that's what we saw. So, uh, you know, should we should we be concerned with it? Should we be worried about it? What what is the situation well, let's listen to Ken Starr talk about this a little bit. It's number four. I was uh, deeply disappointed, uh, and frankly, I was uh, both saddened and angered to uh, read about and to hear about now with the recent uh, reports from uh, the former acting director of the FBI. I mean, who do they think they are? Uh, they're part of the executive branch, and the idea of the FBI, with all of its authority, all of its power, and it has an enormous amount of power, turning that power in a direction against a duly elected president of the United States uh, is, is appalling unless there was some reasonable ground to believe that the president was engaged in criminal conduct or that the president had become an agent of a foreign government. There's, to me, zero evidence that President Trump, whether one loves him or does not love him, was in any way an agent of any foreign power he had relationships, obviously, but who doesn't who's coming into the presidency? But I just think it was an enormously poor judgment on the part of the leadership of the FBI. And it's really a kind of who do you think you are? You're part of the executive branch, and this is really above your pay grade. At a minimum, that's the kind of decision. If there was something that seriously wrong in the view of the FBI, they go knock on the attorney general's office, and the attorney general goes and knocks on the counsel of the president's office. And you do this through regular order as opposed to essentially uh, runaway cops. Now, this is pretty interesting. Um, I and, and I again, <laughs> we we don't. I am not opposed to individuals in government who work with a president, no matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, what have you, 
seeing a problem and saying, you know what, this is a problem. We need to, we need to do something about it. This person is unfit. This person is blah, 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 whatever. But that's not the case here. Clearly, President Trump, you, you know, the, the insults will fly, but he's fit. You don't have to like him. You don't have to agree with his policies, but he's fit. He, and he, there's no reason for him not to be there. So this continual conversation about how we need to get rid of him, it goes against what we know to be the truth, which is that he's, he's perfectly fine in the job. He's healthy. He's sane. And if you don't like what he's doing, your option is to vote for someone else the next go round. Same thing we went through with Barack Obama. So uh, I thought it was interesting that he he had that to say, um, turning that power. He talked about the immense power that these people are wielding and that they're using it to reverse the results of an election that they didn't like. That That's some really telling and interesting um, discussion there. So um, so I want to I want to now go over to this story. And I don't know if we covered it, but there was a man wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Uh, he was in a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and a woman came up to him and assaulted him. I mean, she just went after him. She took into him for wearing this hat. She was totally triggered. It turns out she's of Mexican descent or, or you know, nationality. So what's interesting about the story, because it was on video, and... <laughs> um, the reason I'm saying it's interesting because of the video is because, well, what you would normally think is that if you're already breaking the law, you wouldn't go out of your way to break the law some more. Um, but that's exactly what she did. She actually assaulted this man. And when she was arrested, they found out that she's in the country illegally. Let's just so deeply what disappointed. Uh, she was charged with disorderly conduct and um, assault and battery after she was caught on camera accosting a man wearing a Make America Great Again hat at Falmouth Restaurant. And she's been taken into ICE custody after officials determined that she was in the country illegally. Now, I know, you know, it's it's not right to be taking joy out of the situation, but it is nice to see someone... Basically, you do stupid things, win stupid prizes. Deportation officers with ISIS fugitive operations team arrested Roseanne Santos, an unlawfully present citizen of Brazil. Pardon me. I said she was from Mexico. She's a citizen of Brazil. Today near Falmouth, Massachusetts. Santos is currently facing local charges of assault and other offenses. She is presently in ICE custody and has been entered into removal proceedings before the federal immigration courts. Now, we know, you know, that that could take ages, but she'll be incarcerated the whole time. So she actually assaulted this guy, knocked his hat off his head, got arrested. Now has a criminal record. She's in ICE custody and she's going to be deported. Um, what can I say? I love it when a plan comes together. She. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so she actually was released on her own recognizance. So she's already out. And she overstayed a visa from 1994, just to show you how broken our visa system is. A visa from 1994, and she's been in the country all this time. And you have to wonder, is she living with somebody? Uh, is she, is, does she, like, what exactly is she doing here for all this time? And how is she living? Um, how, how is she living here for all these years? And she, so, yeah, 
just just to to give you a little bit of good news, I don't know how they plan on deporting her if they released her on her own recognizance, but there it is. She was released on her own recognizance. She's still uh, in the country awaiting deportation. Uh, maybe the reason that they have not yet gotten her out has to do with the fact that they don't have anywhere to uh, to hold her. You know what I mean? Like they're because it's a misdemeanor, uh, you know, not a felony assault. Maybe they just don't have any space to hold her in. Uh, it looks like we have callers. We, we're having a, a lot of like computer issues here today. And I do have some people coming out to take a look at this stuff. Uh, Gary in Tennessee. Hey, Gary, thanks for calling the show today. Thanks for taking my call, Stacey. I wanted to comment on the uh, fellow you had on a little bit earlier talking about the Democrat candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to this guy gives me the impression that they are still under the same delusion that cost them the election in 2016, that, or 2018, uh, that somehow they represent what the American people are thinking about. All they can talk about is transgenderism and abortion. And bringing up all these candidates and then talking about Joe Biden, everybody that I know thinks Joe Biden is one of the biggest crooks in D.C. I mean, (laughs) if you go back and look at his uh, public statements, he's been fact-checked out of the world for misstatements. He's talked out of both sides of his mouth, supporting and then objecting against various things over the years. And, mm-hmm. and people that I know believe that he is, you know, in the pocket of the unions. Uh, he does nothing without the approval from the unions. So uh, how they can think a guy like Biden is uh, a viable candidate is just, you know, beyond my understanding. Well, Gary, let me ask you this, because I, I, I love... <laughs> I love the perspective you're bringing, but I'm wondering if it's kind of desperation. Like, so you started off by saying transgenders, you know, the, the, the gun control nuts, all these people who they don't represent mainstream America. And so you have now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that Omar person who wears the head wrap. Um, You have Nancy Pelosi and even Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. They're all so hard to the left. They're trying to be further to the left than Bernie Sanders. So is it that, is it not that they think Joe Biden's so fantastic, but maybe he's their default person because he's the only sane Democrat left who could actually mount a challenge to Donald Trump? Well, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was listening to that fellow. It sounded like a used car salesman trying to sell the last dud on the lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I thought he was really nice, but I didn't understand why he loves Joe Biden so much. I don't I don't understand that at all. So, you know. They have nothing to offer. I, I don't know. They don't have any good people. Any of these people. I think you're exactly right. They have come up with pockets of places around the country that support these one-off people like a AOC, and they think that they can turn that into a national movement. Well, it's not going to. It's just like they thought. They didn't have to uh, accommodate the deplorables and all of the other. Uh, despicable mm-hmm. people that uh, represent the mainstream United States when Hillary ran. They thought they could just ignore those people because they had, you know, all their eggs in a row. Well, they are <laughs> still into the same delusion. Those people that they voted are. for Donald Trump haven't gone away. I hope not. I hope there are more. I hope more people have seen the light um, and, and said, oh, you know what? 
I, I, that's where I need to be next time because these people are too crazy for me. Excellent. I thank you for calling, Gary. Thank you for those comments. It's, it's spot on. Um, let's go to Les in Ohio. Hey, Les, thanks for calling the show today. Hey, Stacy. Uh, spoke with you yesterday. I was, I was on the bike trail yesterday. Ah, <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for my call. And, uh, I, I forgot yesterday, I want to thank you for the service of you and your husband for this great country that you helped make it. And uh, thank I was you. listening to you. Yeah, yes, ma'am, you're welcome. Uh, I know you talk about a permanent tan. Well, I'm a German boy who tries to get a tan all the time, so I can kind of blend <laughs> in with the boys. My brothers that I hook with. <clears throat> but this Christopher uh-huh. Hale, I know when uh, he was speaking, I could sense, I'm definitely a born-again believer looking for the rapture. So when he said something about 65-year-old, old, white men, uh, when you started to talk, I sensed that you really did not like that because uh, you responded by saying a lot of your friends are 65 and white and from Tennessee, family and friends. But I've really got offended. Uh, I'm 72. I do three hours of cardio a day. I bought a hearing aid business for nothing and built it in when Obama said you didn't build it. <clears throat> I was offended by him because I built it into a multi-million dollar thing and employed several employees to help pay taxes and, and make this country great. But uh, I, I, it just struck a chord with me when he talked about old, boring, 65-year-old white men because there are so many of us that our uncles fought and died for this country and so many of people you know that that now that are they got uh, killed never came back some of them and the country has turned into it seems like so much anti-american take down the cross uh mm-hmm. who i listened to you when you said she couldn't even balance her checkbook and procure a place in dc and and now she's just got these uh, poor old white guys trying to follow her. And I heard on Fox this morning that Green Deal is going to be an expensive $93 trillion. That's true. That's true. Thank you so much, Les, for calling the show. And for all, all of your insights there, I I felt bad for uh, Christopher when we were talking because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that he meant that the way it came out, but it, it was kind of tough to hear. Um, that characterization and I wouldn't want to hear that about any group so uh, we'll be back with more after this keep it here here's American Family Association President Tim Wildman Lynn Ingram and Jim Duncan two Texans support and believe in our ministry here at AFA and AFR We know more about the laundry business than anything else. We know a little bit about a lot of things, but we know a lot about the laundry and dry cleaning business. They created a laundry detergent to sell to folks to support AFA. We just want to be able to provide a product that can be used by AFA to support the ministry. When you wash your family's clothes with Redeem Clean Laundry Detergent, you can take great satisfaction in knowing that you're supporting the vital work of the American Family Association. It's a unique way to increase your giving to AFA. For clean laundry and support of a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. 
Learn more about the Redeem Clean products when you visit redeemclean.afastore.net. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Senator Ben Sass is puzzled. He can't understand why his colleagues in the U.S. Senate don't support his legislative attempt to prevent infanticide from becoming medical practice in this country. He says infanticide shouldn't be a partisan issue. Every single public servant should be able to say it's wrong to leave newborn babies to die. One of the best reasons for this bill came from comments by the governor of Virginia. Ralph Nordham explained that an infant would be delivered and resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Senator Sass admits the governor's frankness is rare. No euphemisms, no weasel words. After the national rejection of the governor's words, you would think the U.S. Senate would quickly pass the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. That did not happen. The bill would require that doctors provide the same level of care to the child born from a botched abortion that they would provide to any other baby at the same state of development. During the 1990s, we heard from many Democratic leaders that they wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. When candidate Bill Clinton and later President Bill Clinton would say that phrase, he would even emphasize the word rare. This is not the Democratic Party of today. The state of New York passed legislation that would essentially allow abortion up to birth. It now appears that Democratic leaders are trying to double down on the issue of abortion, perhaps because they fear the Supreme Court might overturn Roe v. Wade. Senator Sass concludes that it should not be difficult for the members of the U.S. Congress to affirm that a child outside the womb deserves the protection of our law. Apparently, for some members of Congress, that is asking too much. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We're no longer dealing with a normal, traditional Democratic Party. We're looking at a party that has been dragged so far to the left, it would have been unrecognizable to folks just a few years ago. In 1996, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan condemned partial birth abortion by comparing it to infanticide. That was a distinguished, mainstream Democratic senator from New York about 20 years ago. And today, today 94% of Senate Democrats could not even vote to protect babies after they're born. And the only explanations they could offer were bizarre euphemisms and vague references to issues that have no bearing once a child has already been born alive. So it was a sorry display, Madam President. But I can say this, this fight isn't over. Republicans will not let this stunning, stunning extremism from our Democratic colleagues be the last word on this subject. Hmm. Uh, that was Leader McConnell, and he sounded pretty pretty upset, blasting the stunning extremism of the Senate Democrats. And I, I got to make it clear here, um, it is extremism to think that it's fine to leave a baby to die uh, after a, you know, botched abortion. And if you think this doesn't happen, it does happen. Kids, babies survive 
attempted abortion. Um, there are an estimated 80 to 100,000 abortion survivors alive in this country right now. If you Google them, you'll see some of them have amazing ministries. Uh, Melissa Ogden is one that I have highlighted before on my blog. She's a, a, she's an amazing woman. And when you hear her speak about all of the people who wouldn't be here if the abortion had been successful, it is amazing because we just don't think in those terms. She literally talks about how at in some ways you you're looking at an abortion minded woman is looking at the baby as something that she doesn't want. What she's not looking at is what happens if you have the baby, whether you keep the baby or not, that baby goes on to grow up and possibly marry and have children of its own and expand the family. And it's just such a stark realization when we, uh, when we, when we address this or when we don't address it, when we just leave it alone and allow the, the, the worst among us to deal with this issue. So I, I'm, I encourage you to look into the, uh, the abortion survivors and the movement that they've, that they've started. Um, it's just such an amazing thing. And so I want to pivot back over. We were talking a little bit with uh, the Ken Starr audio uh, and that this, this is about the political schemes that are going on. And this is something that Jim Jordan uh, has actually talked about, um, you know, the nonsense subpoenas and, and things that are going on with the Democrats because they want to try to get something on the books to work towards impeachment. And, and in my mind, it doesn't look likely, but I'm, I'm not in Washington, D.C., and I don't have access to what they have access to. And my hope is that we're going to see some common sense return to this situation that, because it, really the Democrats have a couple of fires burning right now that they need to put out. Their 2020 announcement season, this was supposed to be this huge rollout of all of these young, fascinating people with these new ideas that were supposed to be this stark contrast to President Trump. They were supposed to make President Trump look old, out of touch, you know, kind of like the vulgarian they think he is. Actually, the opposite is true. President Trump looks very presidential right now. He is, uh, you know, in, in, he's abroad outside the United States, jetting around on Air Force One, meeting with a man who previous to his administration had been a thorn in the side of the United States and presidents and secretaries of state, him and his family, the own family, has, they've just been a thorn in our side. There's never been a good relationship and they've never answered for their promises. They always make promises. They always get concessions from us. And then they always kind of, you know, bag on the deal. President Trump has actually been able to reset that entire relationship. And so it makes him look presidential. Even Bernie Sanders had to admit at some town hall on CNN last night that he had to say something good about President Trump that he's making headway with Kim Jong-un. So that's what we have going on with President Trump. And of course, there's some new accuser. He tried to kiss me. Who believes that? Uh, I know we're on radio, but my hand is not up. I don't believe her. I don't believe her. And it doesn't matter if I believe her or not. What matters is if she has any evidence. And um, what matters is what the president says in response to that. But I, he's innocent until proven guilty. You know, I'm going to need some videotape or some audio tape or something. Uh, you know, 100 witnesses who saw it with their own two eyes who are impeccable and, and uh, unassailable. Yeah, I'm going to need all that. That's what's happening with the president. On the other side, you have the Democrats fighting a couple of different things. Obviously, the presidential rollout wasn't good, but then the second fire they're fighting is their new incoming congressional freshman 
who instead of putting their noses down and zipping their lips and not spending a ton of time on TV, but attending every meeting, reading every piece of paper front and back, asking questions, getting policy uh, you know, wonks and, and think tank wonks to come in and brief their, their membership. Because when you're on a committee, that committee can receive briefings. And so you can arrange these and you can sit and you can listen. And before people start judging, I'm saying this, I've spent hundreds of hours at these kinds of policy lunches and things here locally in St. Louis and all over the country when I've gone to conferences. And I've learned so much. And it informs you in a way that it can't be understated how important it is. Whether you're listening to think tanks that you completely agree with or that you're completely opposed to or somewhere in between, you always learn a lot about what their goals are, what they're working towards, who they're communicating with, and who you can communicate with if you want to maybe change the conversation. The other thing I've learned is that when, when you're at these events, sitting at these luncheons or what have you, and they're briefing on, on different topics, whether it's local things like wastewater management, um, the Army Corps of Engineers and how they work with local governments to keep storm sewers clear and to protect waterways in the United States. I sat through a couple of luncheons on that. They were so fascinating. Whether it's from a local policy organization that actually sends their analysts out to local meetings to interface with local officials on really important policy that never makes it into the local newspaper as something that we're, you know, spending an outsized amount of tax dollars on, or whether it's national policy on guns or, uh, you know, family policy, whatever. Every time I've sat, it's, it's been just amazing. Now, if you let's ratchet that up a little bit, because I'm just a regular person, a member of the public. If you are briefing congressional members, you can actually get classified briefings as a congressional member. You can actually sit with people from the FBI and DOJ and learn about, you know, what they're doing on, on any number of things that they're working on. You get these reports, you get to read them, and then you get to contact the author of the report or someone from their office to come in and give you a live briefing where you can ask questions. And so why do I think that's so important? Because when you're new someplace, you need to learn the job, right? You're, you, you shouldn't be there telling everybody else what they're supposed to be doing. When you're new, you're supposed to be doing all the heavy lifting, reading every scrap of paper, taking every meeting answering and returning phone calls, making phone calls to reach out and make those connections so you can be well-versed at the job and you can catch up. There's a ramping up period. When you go someplace new, you have to ramp up. And it's exhausting. And so it means you don't have a lot of time for TV. And, and y'all know me. I've been on uh, everything, every, every, every channel. I've been on local channels. I've been on the BBC and, and Channel 4 uh, in, in uh Great Britain, I did that as a remote hit from right here in St. Louis. I do like going on television. I'm an Emmy-nominated television personality, actually. But I don't think going on TV and getting that kind of publicity is more important than doing the work which congressional members have to do. And so as much as I may dislike Sheila Jackson Lee or Nancy Pelosi, they've been in their positions long enough to have had enough briefings to at least have a knowledge base that they're operating from. I don't agree with their knowledge base. I think they probably need more briefings, to be quite honest with you. But at least they've been there a while. At least they have the lay of the land. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does not have enough knowledge about being a congressional person to be on television talking about it. She doesn't have enough knowledge from reading and exploring the different policies that are current law in our government and the different things that are going on right now that our agencies are working on to be out there on television telling other people she's the boss when she was elected by basically 15,000 people in Brooklyn. 
not the whole district voted for her, just 15,000. That's all it took. And it's not just her. Omar, the head wrap wearer, she's out talking about things, foreign policy. She knows nothing about what's going on over there except her own personal experience, anecdotal information. Why would we listen to her? Why are the news organizations putting a microphone in these women's faces? Why are they letting them come on the big Sunday shows? It takes years of hard work for regular people who want to become policy wonks, writing, uh, you know, commenting, going on networks, other networks to get a spot on uh, 60 Minutes or MSNBC's, you know, big Sunday show, going on Meet the Press. Those are big opportunities, you don't just get elected to Congress and all of a sudden you're on there every time you turn around. These two are just out there, you know, flapping their gums. We have a responsibility to be informed when we, you know, you, you go out for that job, you get it. And then that's when the real work begins. That's when the slog begins. Because then you realize, wow, look at all these stacks of reports that I'm supposed to be reading. I've got a thousand emails in my email box. <laughs> my closed email box that only approved senders can, can email me. I've got a lot to do here. And so there's, you know, maybe ordering in some pizza or a salad. And instead of running around acting like you rule the entire universe, get to work. If, if we had a system where we could actually tell our congressional members what to do um, and kind of boss them around a little bit, it would be, you know, calling her up and asking her, so what, what reports have you read? What information can you share about issues facing your congressional district, what constituent calls have you taken um, and addressed the issue and completed to resolution any problems that a constituent of yours might have? You know, there's that aspect of it too. It's not just taking meetings with policy wonks and listening to briefings and watching Excel, you know, uh, slideshow presentations on, in PowerPoint. It's also people who contact their congressperson and say, I'm having this problem and I've exhausted all my resources. Can you help me? It's veterans who, con who they contact their congressional members and they, they literally get shut out. They email radio hosts and ask, can you, can you do something about this? Radio hosts can't help you with an issue that is with the Veterans Administration. You need your congressperson to help you. What is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doing to help her constituents? I'm sure if the news media cared anything about it, they could probably find people to talk about how they've, since she's been elected, they've called, they've written, they've maybe even dropped by her local office, and they're not getting any response back because she's too busy going on television. She's too busy talking about herself. She's too busy going out buying white outfits, which, you know, I'm not a hater. Do what you got to do. Wear the cute clothes. That's awesome. But what kind of work are you putting in? So back to uh, Jim Jordan, who is the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. He actually delivered remarks outlining the political schemes of the committee led by Chairman Elijah Cummings. He had five minutes to speak, and he explained the motives, purposes, and narrative intents of the Pelosi plan to build a false impeachment premise. Jordan actually uses a baseline to deconstruct the insufferable plans of Pelosi's kind of three-headed monster, Schiff, Nadler, and Cummings. They are preparing to roll out a scheme which would make it possible for them to impeach Donald Trump. Now, you got Cohen coming in. He's going to allege that the president has committed illegal acts while in office, something that, if it was true, Cohen could have reported it at the time and 
you know, uh, launched a separate investigation into that, but he did no such thing. And you have right after Cohen's testimony, the coordination here is evident. You're going to see Robert Mueller deliver his final report on the Trump Russia probe. They've already been sitting together mapping this out. It's the reason why Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and the others, they don't they don't do anything for their constituents. Their their sole purpose in life is to remove Donald Trump from office and at very minimum impeach him. So he remains in office crippled and unable to complete his agenda. They're planners. They're planners. They keep their plans close to the vest and they operate within the bounds of what they can do with their power. So they're trying to weaponize impeachment. It's a target of the executive office, diminishing the presidency, isolating and marginalizing the president, you know, using Alinsky's rules and positioning themselves for 2020, especially in the absence of a really strong candidate base. And if you think about this, this really makes sense. You have the Democrats with the, the just abysmal slate of candidates from Elizabeth Warren, who has an identity crisis about her ethnic background. Um, Kamala Harris, another person who she doesn't know her roots at all uh, and, and is absolutely unsuited for the whole mantle of she's going to be the first black woman president with her background. Black Americans don't appreciate the background that she comes from. And I'm, I'm not I'm not downgrading it. I think she is who she is and she should be proud of her background. But it's not the background that resonates with urban America. And then the others. Corey, I'm a heterosexual booker. He's now dating a woman. When we all know just um, up until last year in the fall, before he began to really seriously consider and put together his, his campaign for the presidency, he was an open homosexual. He's the number one questioner on homosexual issues on the committee that he sits on. When candidates come in for uh, they've been nominated for cabinet positions, he's the one who always asks them if they think homosexual sex is a sin. Do they find it disgusting? Do they want to watch it? That's Cory Booker. And uh, so Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Who else? Just run down the line. Bernie Sanders, a man who literally foams at the mouth in anticipation of ushering America into a socialist nation, which after that he would be our dictator and it would be communism and he would own everything and people would be going to the gulags. No, no, no joking here. I'm not, I'm not kidding in the least. No tenfold hattery. This is the, the trajectory that he would put our country on. And who else? There's just a gaggle of them and each one worse than the one before. So, of course, they want to impeach the president. They have to weaken him because their field is weak and they need someone who's been damaged in order to even have a chance at 2020. All right, when we get back, we'll be talking about the border wall again. <laughs> Keep it here. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and, and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, 
we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with Eight Days of Hope. Abraham Hamilton III. Don't you realize when you see some of the inner workings of the cell, with each component having its role to play, when you have soldiers and you have operators, you have little machines that are working, if the Lord would do that with something as micro and as undetectable by the natural eye as the cell, how much more will he provide for you? The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is coming June 20th through 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. I love AFR. You say it's on the radio too? Here at American Family Radio, we know that many people find their audio entertainment in other places than the radio. So our programming is available with the AFR app on Apple and Android devices, through Amazon Alexa, and now available on Roku. I just love the podcasts. That too. American Family Radio, streaming our podcast, now available wherever you are. And we're on the radio. America's election headquarters. Democrats trying to woo early state voters are hearing that when it comes to beating Donald Trump, we're desperate. But in early states in the last week, potential Democratic primary goers there are much more passionate about things like health care. What are you going to do to offer quality health care to all Americans? In South Carolina, climate change is seen as a unique threat. I think our state is very vulnerable with the rising seas. Ultimately, people want presidential hopefuls to explain what they can do for them, like this educator in Manchester. Why don't I get paid more? Even though everything in the political universe seems to revolve around President Trump, Democratic candidates I've seen aren't hearing a ton of specific complaints about him. They're hearing more questions about what Democrats could possibly offer to improve their lives at work or at home. In Washington, Peter Ducey, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Some people believe that the emergency declaration could lead to Democrats in the future doing the same thing on other issues. That's not my concern. My concern is a broken border. It is not a manufactured crisis. And what upsets me so much is that in 2013, almost all Democrats voted for $9 billion for border security, for barriers, as part of a $44 billion package. So to my Republican friends, it's clear to me they're not recognizing President Trump won. They're not having the same attitude about barriers under Trump as they did Obama. You're basically legitimizing, uh, marginalizing the Trump presidency by not, by, by not standing by the president, because the Democrats are not playing fair with President Trump. He doesn't have any choice but to declare a national emergency, and he has all the legal authority needs to do it. So, yeah, the president absolutely has the ability to declare a national emergency. But you might be wondering for the additional monies, like where are they coming from and what is the what is the methodology for accessing them and all of that? And I found this this breakdown from Lindsey Graham to be fascinating just because um, we've been told that he can't move the money. He can't get the money. You know, don't 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 act like he can do anything with the money. And I I get it. I understand, but it's not true. And so what I want to do is, is 
unpack that a little bit more. And so here, here's the remainder of that. It's uh, Lindsey Graham talking about the sources for the $5.7 billion outside of the little bit that was allocated uh, in the, the bill that he signed. Uh, it's number six. Well, he wants $5.7 billion. Now, what does that number represent? That number represents the top 10 priorities of the Department of Homeland Security as to where you actually need barriers. This is not President Trump sitting down and making stuff up. This is what the professionals tell us we need. These are the top 10 sites that we need a barrier to protect the border, and the total cost is 5.7. You take the 1.375 out of that, what what Congress gave him, and you go into the military construction con uh, 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 a bill, you go into other pieces of legislation, you move money around, and you build out the wall, uh, the barrier. That's where he's going to get the money from, some from here, some from there. And the National Emergency Declaration has been used 50 times. Obama sent troops to the border. Bush 43 sent troops to the border. Trump is sending troops to the border. What's the difference between sending a soldier to the border to shore up the border than having a soldier build a barrier while they're there? Yeah. He has all the legal authority he needs, and I hope the Republicans will stand behind him. This is a defining issue in our party. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's. A defining issue for the party, but it's also a defining issue for Americans because we we've got only just a couple things we can do, which is continue on in the way that we've been going and, and literally lose our country or we put a stop to it. Just actually pump the brakes. Now, um, there's currently a bill that's working its way through the House, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what the status is on it um, just yet, but it looks like they're going to be sending it to the Senate and I'm not sure if it will die there or not, but here's, here's what we know so far. Republican senators, there are some who plan to vote against the president's national emergency and via CNN, you have Senator Tom Tillis. Uh, he is up for reelection in 2020 and he wrote an op-ed for the Washington post that he favors border security, but he's concerned that the president has overreached his authority with the national emergency declaration. He says he doesn't want to provide, as a, uh, a U.S. senator, a means by which the president can bypass Congress. He can't endorse a president a precedent that he knows future left-wing presidents would exploit to advance radical policies. Now, I would love to introduce Senator Tom Tillis to uh, John Malcolm, who's been on the show a couple of times and is a, a legal expert and analyst and among a host of other really impressive things. And he works for the Heritage Foundation, and he's been on, and he's explained to us definitively that this is not something we need to worry about with the Second Amendment or climate change, because this is unique in that it has to do with our border, which is a national sovereignty issue, a drug interdiction issue, and uh, you know it's it's absolutely constitutional. Where a national emergency on gun violence would not be constitutional, because the Constitution protects the right to keep and bear arms. So the Republicans. Uh, out of the Republicans that are in the Senate, um, four of them would be needed to join the Democrats to make something happen because Republicans control 53 seats in the chamber. If all the Democrats vote for it, they would still need four Republicans to help them stop the national emergency that the president has initiated. They have two now since Tillis, who I just described to you, is joined by Maine Senator Susan Collins who's also up for re-election in 2020, she says she will join with the Democrats. Now, Lisa Murkowski, who's a moderate Republican from Alaska, which I think that term moderate Republican for her with her stance on abortion is completely inappropriate. 
uh, she is actually expressing some concern. She says she may possibly support the proposal of disapproval, not because she disagrees with the president on border security, but because she thinks it's so important for there to be clear lines with the separation of powers. Get that. Would you just like lay back a little bit? Um, So Tom Tillis has a hard F rating at conservative review. And the question is, who will they muscle down to get four in the Senate to send the resolution to President Trump's desk? Now, mind you, the president's going to veto this. So they can take all the actions they want. He's going to veto it. And they do not have the two-thirds majority in both houses that they would need to override the veto. So this is a symbolic gesture. But my, it's symbolic in that they just want to be on the record as doing this. But for me, it's symbolic because I get to see once again who the turncoats are. Tillis is up for re-election. If you live in his state, uh, you should be thinking of who could be his replacement. It's the perfect time to look for someone to primary him. Uh, let's see what state he's from. Senator Tom Tillis hails from, hmm. yeah, he says he's going to vote for it. I'm looking to see what state he's he's hailing from. Senator Tom Tillis, um, North Carolina. So it can be a little moderate there at times. Um, he has a pinned thing up on his Twitter about Black History Month. And he has an op-ed over at the Washington Post about, uh, you know, executive overreach. And wow, the Washington Post opinions are tweeting him and and kind of giving him big ups. Yeah, whatever. I I mean, no offense because he is welcome to his opinions. But if he's not going to be with the president on something as integral and important to Americans as, uh, you know, border security, then... It kind of makes you wonder if he's in the right spot. He might be better served in local government in his state as opposed to being a senator because we need people in the Senate on the Republican side who are going to support the president's agenda. Um, he doesn't look like he's the guy. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's that's an interesting, um, interesting development. And for everything, you know, we people are going to take their positions and then we're going to have to make a decision about whether or not we support them. Um, Now, Democrat Scanlon, and you guys have to, it's, it's kind of amazing how wacky these people are getting. So she says, this Democrat says in committee hearing today that border agents are like Nazi collaborators. Just following orders is no more an excuse today than it was back in Germany. She's a Democrat. Uh, She's from Pennsylvania. She's Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, and she was speaking Tuesday at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on the administration's policy on separating children at the border. And she said she was struck by the denial of humanity to illegal immigrants. People who choose to bring their children to the country illegally, knowing they'll be sexually trafficked and possibly separated from them at the border. And she thinks the humanity issue is with us as a country. Just goes to show you that that's their constituency. It's not Americans. It's not the rule of law that they care about. It's people who are foreigners trying to get in here. The quote from her is, when you say that the cause of migration is legal loopholes or bad judicial decisions, rather than the dire conditions of violence and poverty in these people's home country, 
that's literally driving them from home, I think it's easier to slam the door against these kids and these families. This hearing is a recognition and an insistence that on that humanity, a recognition that just following orders is no more an excuse today than it was back in Germany. And, and that may be a wonderful soundbite for her. That's something that she can say that she can kind of be like, oh, you know, look what I said. And that quote can get viral and run all over the place. But is it a valid position for her to have as a member of Congress that we should put our laws down in favor of people whose home countries are violent just because they come from a place that's not as good as here? She could never answer that question. If, if she were to come on this show, which she would never do, and I ask her some of the hard questions, what about the denial of humanity of the victims of illegal alien crime? She would say, well, those are just raw numbers. We've heard that before, right? Unbelievable. So that brings us over to yet another Democrat. And I, I just think it's interesting that this is the, the progression, that these people don't feel the need to hold these negative, ridiculous opinions inside themselves anymore. They're just itching to let them out. This woman, she's a Democratic state lawmaker, had to apologize for using the N-word to describe a district in Maryland. Now, remember, it's the Republicans who are the racists, right? Exhibit, you know, H, which is just farther on down the alphabet, going through, you know, time after time after time. Maryland delegate Marianne Lasanti, Democrat, apologized Monday night to the leaders of the Legislative Black Caucus after witnesses say she used a racial slur while describing a legislative district in Prince George's County, though the lawmaker says she doesn't remember using the slur. She's, you know, obviously she's white and she was approached by the members of the Legislative Black Caucus Monday night after it was reported she made the comment at an, a bar, a cigar bar in Annapolis, Maryland. Apparently, she was speaking to a white colleague in late January, and it was reported in the Washington Post. Democratic Delegate Daryl Barnes, who chairs the Black Caucus and represents a district in Prince George's County, said Lasanti apologized to the caucus multiple times, but he wants her to take further steps towards absolution. He told the Post he thinks that when anyone uses the word, it's a reflection of what's in their heart. I wonder what he thinks about when rappers use the word, no matter what their ethnic background, when rappers use the word over and over and over again, training our young people to use it. Anyone who they're listening to that music, they hear it, they hear it over and over and over again, and they begin to think it's acceptable to use that word. I wonder what he thinks about that. I mean, it's kind of amazing. What does this legislative black caucus member think about the music that promotes this kind of uh, ridiculous usage of this word? Well, I'm pretty sure he doesn't care anything about it. So if she's apologized several times, why does she need to then go and apologize to the entire caucus? He also wants her to participate in sensitivity training. And it's possible that the caucus might offer other recommendations to House leadership. So basically, now that she's apologized over and over and over again, they want her to apologize some more, go to some kind of indoctrination training, and then after that, They'll have other suggestions because they want to milk this for as much as they can, get as much out of it as they can. Now, Lasanti is in her second term, and she was questioned about this before the Legislative Black Caucus members brought it up. The Washington Post actually asked her about her alleged use of the slur, and she claimed, I don't recall that. I don't recall much of that evening. And they asked her, well, if you don't recall using it then, have you used it before? Like, is it something that you use? And she said, 
Well, I'm sure I have. I'm sure everyone has used it. I've used the F word. I use the Lord's name in vain. So she was very open about the fact that she uses profane language and that that's something that's normal that a lot of people do. And she didn't, I'm, I'm sure when she admitted that, she didn't think it was going to go this far. So Delegate Cherie Sample Hughes is one of Lasanti's Democratic colleagues, and she said it's very disheartening and frustrating to hear one of her colleagues use the term in 2019. She said she also wondered why her colleague appeared comfortable using the word. And she said she asked Lasanti during a meeting, did anyone in your family use that term when you were growing up? Again, what business is it of hers? What kind of background Lasanti had growing up? It's as if we're elevating one sin, which is the sin of racism, above and beyond every other sin. Like, I'd love to know if Delegate Cherie Sample Hughes listened to rap music when she was growing up, if anyone in her family used racially charged monikers for people of other races besides blacks, like the horrible names that some people use for white people. I mean, it, if, if this is where we're going, if everyone's going to have to have an open public examination of their upbringing and any of their family members who might have said things that are not PC, not acceptable, I'm not condoning the use of any of this language, but if the shoe's going to go on the other foot, whoa, pump the brakes, get careful here. None of us have a perfect family background where no one ever said a curse word or ever used a racial slur. And so if it's good for the goose, it's got to be good for the gander. Also, did you listen to the music? Yeah, I said it. And I don't care who emails me about what I said just now. Either we can accept an apology and forgive and move on, or everybody gets to be examined. Everybody talk about the music they've listened to, the curse words they've said, every rule they've broken. This everybody gets to confessing. Just so sick of the continual focus on this instead of real issues. We're paying these people a lot of money to just sit around and talk about race. What a waste of time. All right, y'all. God bless you. Have a fantastic evening. See you tomorrow.